0: Welcome to another United States Studies Centre webinar on COVID, uh, the big questions. Um, I'm Simon Jackman. I'm a professor of political science at the University of Sydney and the chief executive officer of the United States Studies Centre at the University of Sydney. And um, as is customary with events, be they in person or in this case, uh, virtual events, um, we begin by acknowledging the traditional owners, of the lands on which the University of Sydney stands, and, and those are the Gadigal people, part of the Eora Nation, and we pay our respects to elders past, present, and emerging. Today, the big question we're turning our attention to is what does globalization look like after COVID-19? And, and the occasion for today's conversation is the launch of a new report from Stephen Kirchner, who directs our trade and investment program at the U.S. Study Center. Um, Stephen is also a senior fellow with the Fraser Institute, uh, a a Canadian think tank. And before coming to the U.S. Study Center, he was an economist uh, with the Australian Financial Markets Association. Uh, Stephen holds a PhD in economics has published widely in in both sort of on the think tank side of ledger but also in in refereed journals of of economics and a tremendous addition uh, to the study center having that balance of uh, policy relevance and and academic rigor That's exactly um, why we hired Stephen to be perfectly honest about it. But today Stephen's got a, um, a, a new report out and there it is on screen at the moment globalization and labor productivity in the OECD. What are the implications for post-pandemic recovery and resilience? And we'll get into that report by Stephen and in just a moment. But joining us as well today from Dartmouth University is Doug Irwin. And, And we've had the pleasure of hosting Doug in country briefly in the past, and we were hoping to do so perhaps again some point this year. Uh, of course, events haven't quite panned out that way, but, but Doug is the John French Professor of Economics at Dartmouth and is one of the leading economists when it comes to the study of, 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 of trade. Uh, he's the author of Clashing Over Commerce, A History of U.S. Trade Policy, uh, which The Economist and Foreign Affairs uh, selected as one of their best books of the year. Um, like many leading economists in the United States he has an affiliation with the NBER the National Bureau of Economic Research and, and Doug is also a non-resident senior fellow at the Peterson Institute for International Economics one of the leading economics think tanks in the United States there on, on, on Mass Ave and Think Tank Alley uh, in Washington DC Doug also has, has had spells out in the real world of policy Uh, working on the staff of uh, President Ronald Reagan's Council of Economic Advisers. And he's also worked um, uh, in the Fed, in the Federal Reserve System, uh, in the International Finance Division, uh, supporting uh, the Federal Reserve uh, Governor's uh, spell in Washington, D.C. And and Doug joins us from Hanover, New Hampshire, uh, where we can see the beautiful Dartmouth campus there behind Doug. Uh, good evening to you, Doug, in the, in the east coast of the United States.
1: Yes, and good morning to you, everyone there in Australia. I'm sorry I can't be there in person, but um, I did show you here, you can see a little bit of what uh, New
0: England looks like. And it's, a, it's a beautiful part of the world and a, and a beautiful, beautiful campus. Uh, in, in a beautiful part of the world, uh, at least in the summer <laughs> right, yes, <laughs> that, yes. that view looks a little different <laughs> yes, <laughs> different times it's of the year March, it's um, been cool. What I'd like to do is um, well before we get into Stephen's report, I thought while we've got Doug this opportunity to engage with Doug from from the United States, uh, some, some some big picture observations from Doug, but let me just briefly tee this up before i hand over to doug and you know I, I am not an economist but but i do direct the united states Study center and this is core business for us and and there's a sense that you know will future economic historians you know doug's phd students and perhaps their phd students point to sometime around 2016 as the high watermark of globalization and economic liberalization and that's a key question for a US study centre here in Australia. Um, And why? And briefly, well, it was the United States, of course, that helped create the globalised economy through its economic power, the sheer size of its domestic economy, the industrial and managerial engineering capacity. It emerges from World War II through the second half of the 20th century with and vast reservoirs of private capital. But critically too, it's thought leadership and it's universities and it's think tanks. You know, it's no, it's no understatement to say the U.S. helped build was was perhaps the central driver of building the global liberal economic order. Uh, the United States retains key appointment and veto rights to the institutions that it helped build through that period: the World Bank, the IMF, the WTO, the G7, in no particular order. Um, and Australia has been a beneficiary. Of that system, a, a trading nation uh, endowed with huge stocks of commodities and agricultural exports, and now more recently tourism and higher education as as our um, exports. But Australia, a trading nation, uh, incredibly reliant on the free flow of of, of, uh, of capital and and goods um, uh, through through and services now uh, through the international system, and then we come. To the last couple of years and and i guess for me it was really seeing donald trump his acceptance speech when he took the republican nomination to be the their, their candidate for president It was the first time in my living memory that a nominee of a major party um voiced well frankly hostility uh, certainly skepticism but perhaps it, you know you might even say a repudiation of sort of the sort of what had been pretty much a, a, a settled bipartisan consensus that free trade was a good thing, uh, a good thing uh, for American workers, for American households, for America, and, and for the world, and and Trump, as I said, was I think the first major party nominee uh, that I can recall in, in again in my living memory uh, to to say, well, wait a minute, maybe maybe that's not the case. Um, and and then in short order, followed through on his promise to pull the United States out of the TPP. And that's where life gets especially interesting for Australia, because at the same time, there's sort of growing concerns all over the world, but particularly in Australia and the United States, um, that being too dependent on one large trading partner, and China, uh, creates risk to national sovereignty, to national security, particularly given the fact that that trading partner is in a phase of what you might call authoritarian consolidation, bolstering its resolve and its capacity for asserting itself uh geopolitically and militarily uh in the region and perhaps even globally. And then finally the last, if you will, to be perfectly bleak about this gentleman, is, is sort of a, the, the hammer in the coffin uh might if you know, if, at the risk of being a little melodramatic, is, is COVID nineteen. Where that perfect storm that's been brewing for a little while seems to find you know voice uh, on a, uh that that alliance between those with national security concerns or sovereignty concerns about about exposure to trade uh meets those that domestic those domestic concerns that i think trump was tapping into and now we find ourselves sort of i think probably you know with with the the first derivative is, is negative with respect to appetite for, 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 for free trade and, and economic liberalization in a way that i certainly didn't see coming 12 months ago certainly trump was president 12 months ago but i think that's enough sort of teeing it up why this is so important for us and and stephen this is the second report um on this and and sort of a bit of a theme how we we don't throw the baby out with the bathwater, if you will um, recognizing sort of the risks uh, that, that are in the, the global uh, system at the moment, um, but, but finding a, a vocabulary and a set of arguments um, and a set of evidence, empirical evidence, that helps us see um, the virtues and perhaps a pathway for what does, what does globalization, economic liberalization look like? Uh, in this context that we find ourselves in now, so that's enough headlining and editorialising from me. I think, and and Doug, I hope that's a helpful tee up because you've got a, uh, I know you've got a slide ready to show us that that may, that might might pick up where I where I'm leaving off there. But but I'm wondering if we could get some, some some thoughts from you at this point, perhaps in reaction to what I said. But I know you've seen Stephen's report. Um, Would welcome uh, five ten minutes uh, from you to get us going, Doug.
1: Thank you very much. It's a great pleasure to be here. Um, if we turn to the slide, it sort of a, summarizes much of what you were talking about. And I think it gives us a historical context for thinking about where we are in the globalization moment. And I think uh, the way Simon put it was very apt in saying, have we hit sort of the high watermark of globalization? So there are many dimensions to globalization in terms of uh, um, international migration of people, uh, trade in goods. Uh, trade and services, uh, investment flows, uh, so, so many dimensions. One simple way uh, of having a metric or uh, something we can sort of plot is just the trade share, trade to GDP. And this is for the whole world, so it's not looking at any one particular country, but it sort of tells a story about what's happened over the past century. So the first period there uh, from 1870 to 1914 is one of industrialization and integration. You can see the slight rise in the world trade to GDP share. Then we have the interwar period, so World War I knocks that down. Um, also, uh, the Russian Revolution um, knocks that down because uh, with Russia withdraws from world trade and they had been a, a big grain exporter. Uh, we had the Spanish pandemic in 1918, probably not a huge permanent shock to globalization, but part of this trifecta of what's going on uh, around, uh, around 1914 to 1920 or so. And then we had the slide with the Great Depression as well. Um, and you can see that trade to GDP share shrink. And then uh, after 1945, uh, as you mentioned, that, that we had the, the creation of the international economic system with the uh, GATT, um, now the WTO and the IMF and the World Bank, and this gradual uh, movement up in the trade share as trade barriers came down. There's this key period which we've just really lived through which I think economic historians will look back at, at a pretty amazing time of increased global integration from roughly the 1980s until uh, 2008 or so. Uh, This is a period of uh, declining trade barriers. This is a period of containerization and incredible efficiencies in moving goods between markets, whether it's air freight, whether it's uh, shipping costs going down um, and just the raw efficiency of the container. This is developing countries for the first time really becoming part of the global economy. You know, when we talk about the GATT or some of the institutions after World War II, that was basically between the United States, North America, say Western Europe, and a few other countries such as Australia. It didn't really include Latin America, didn't really include Africa, didn't really include East Asia, um, who by their own policies uh, stepped back from the global economy. Well, in the 1980s and 90s, we had the disintegration of the Soviet Union, bringing a lot more states into the system, Obviously, we had Deng Xiaoping and the opening of China, which had been incredibly sealed off uh, to world markets, becoming this huge force. We saw uh, changes in India. Uh, you know, Once again, a very large populated country with a, a large economy opening up to trade, and of course reforms in Latin America and elsewhere. And this led to a, a very sharp, it doesn't look so dramatic on the chart perhaps, but a, a huge increase in global integration. But the interesting fact is that uh, uh, whether this is topped off? Some people say we've reached and pa- perhaps past peak globalization, and I think there are a couple of factors behind this. And of course, just in the past four years or so, we've had this confluence, which uh, may be putting giving downward momentum to this. So, first of all, the, the liberalization of uh, the 1990s began to peter out. So, uh, and in some sense, there's a limit to how far countries can go in terms of you know once you open up China. Um, and they joined the WTO in 2001, their trade barriers had been brought down pretty significantly. Obviously, there's always further room countries can go in terms of liberalization, but the big work had been done. And so you're gonna get marginal increases in trade as a result of liberalization, but not maybe huge leaps like we'd seen in the past. So just as uh, we create the WTO, the Doha round of trade negotiations goes nowhere, and we can come back to that. Um, liberalization sort of slows down. Then we have the 2008 financial crisis in the United States and the global recession. Around this time too, the World Bank has just issued its World Development Report that talks about global value chains. And what they find is that global value chains basically peaked around the time of, of 2008 or so. So the spreading of production networks, the integration of production uh, across countries, that also rose rapidly in that period of liberalization. We saw North American markets integrating with NAFTA, for example, obviously East Asian markets as well. Um, But that sort of uh, topped out as well. Then we had uh, um, in China uh, a movement inward. Um, Partly it was a a rebalancing of uh, China from their huge current account surpluses in the 2000s. And so exports uh, have actually fallen quite considerably as a share of uh, China's GDP. So whether it's rebalancing or, or policy actions, China sort of not withdrawn from the global economy, but um, their trade share has fallen. So exports fell from about 35% of GDP in the mid 2000s to about 17% today. Then of course we have 2016. So we have Brexit uh, going on in Europe. We have uh, President Trump being elected. And as you mentioned uh, here, we have for the first time in modern memory, a president that's actively hostile, not just to trade itself, but to the institutions that the US had created after World War II. And while the United States has not pulled out of the World Trade Organization yet, but well, we can speculate what might happen in a second term, what will come to that perhaps in the Q&A. But at any rate, the US begins to turn inward its, as, itself. Um, in some sense, the rhetoric has been a little bit more than the actions. We've had a renegotiation of NAFTA not a uh, pulling out, uh, but we have had steel tariffs, which I know affected uh, Australia. Um, and we've had the trade war with China, which is a very significant development. Anytime you have the two world's leading economies, uh, basically, decoupling has been a word, term used in the United States. That might be a bit too strong, but certainly a separation, uh, a delinking, if you will, of the two economies. Remains to be seen how far that will be taken, but certainly the direction is one of uh, less integration. Then, of course, if 2016 was not enough, uh, what's going on in the U.S. and, and China, uh, and then we have the COVID-19. And I think this is also a new uh, challenge for globalization. But before I talk about COVID-19, let me just point out the last element of the chart here, which is um, that little red part since 20, 2008, uh, the era of globalization. That's, that's when we seem to have hit this inflection point in terms of peak globalization. Obviously, we don't know exactly what the, the future um, will hold. But it does seem like we may have reached a peak. It's going to be very tough to get back to that peak. Um, because there have been these this combination of forces that have uh, sort of conspired to uh, push global economic integration down. I view this as wor- worrisome sign uh, in many ways because uh, the most recent period is one that is under which Australia has prospered, China has prospered, so many countries. Obviously there's a globalization backlash in many countries, but also there's tremendous prosperity and wealth that has been built around the world um, through the process of economic integration over the past few decades. So then we come to COVID-19. Uh, and obviously there's a, a short-term challenge here and a long-term challenge here. The short-term challenge is that um, we haven't seen, you know, fully the GDP numbers in the United States and, and around the world, but uh, we know the second quarter of the, uh, GDP for the U S is going to be a pretty significant hit. And anytime there's a contra- contraction in economic activity, when we have this uh, global lockdown, if you will, we know world trade is going to take an even bigger hit because uh, the, the response of trade to economic activity is highly elastic, uh, much more than uh, one, uh, as economists would say. And the D- World Trade Organization is anticipating that the volume of world trade uh, for this year, 2020, will fall anywhere between 13% to 35%. That's a big range, but uh, and we don't know exactly, of course, how it will work out, but those are huge numbers. For example, the, the volume of world trade fell about 12% in 2008, uh, if memory serves. And they're expecting something much bigger than that. Now, if the world uh, sort of opens up again, there's no reason why uh, world trade flows can't resume. But here's where the long-term reaction is sort of critical for how we uh, move forward. In the first place, there's gonna be uh, some long-run adjustments to the way business is done around the world. So as Simon mentioned in his remarks, uh, there's a questioning about over on certain suppliers for important goods. In the US there's this debate about medical equipment, about personal protective gear, about masks, um, and there's a, an effort to onshore some of that production. So that means less dependence on China, but it's not just China. The United States gets many of its rubber gloves from Malaysia um, and equipment f- uh, from around the world. So uh, business itself is going to adjust because um, uh, not just those pressures, but um, they want to make their supply chains more resilient uh, if this tr- tr- should happen again or if supply chains don't open up. So former Treasury Secretary uh, Larry Summers of the United States, also former president of Harvard, has said that American business is going to move from just-in-time to just-in-case. Just-in-time inventories being efficiency is the most important thing. When you could count on the goods getting there. But when you can't cut on the goods getting there, you want resilience in your supply chains, not efficiency. So you move from just in time to just in case. Just in case we can't get the goods from China, we better have a backup plan. So businesses are going to be making some adjustments. Uh, They've been thinking things through uh, very carefully um, in terms of how they want to respond. I think what's more worrisome is not what business will do, but what governments will do in response to this. So the policy response uh, in the US, and I think in Europe and many other countries, uh, is whenever times are bad, whenever there's fear um, about the future, there's a tendency to, to turn inward and to become more self-reliant. And uh, that's where you could get policy measures that don't just, um, that force business to onshore rather than allowing them to manage the risks themselves, that you get uh, a buy America provisions, that you get um, tariffs going up. Um, and we've seen uh, around the world export bans, um, for certain commodities or for certain uh, products that uh, people, uh, governments want to keep at home. Um, and the question is, you know, if the economies don't bounce back, I think there will be this inward turn where policy will uh, push uh, trade to lower levels and try to onshore more and more activities. And of course, I wouldn't say that we'd go back to the 1930s scenario of truly beggar thy neighbor policies, but once again, the idea of safety, national security, economic independence, all these things become much more part of the conversation than they've been over the past 30 years. The reason why I don't think we will go back to a 1930s scenario is that uh, globalization was hard to create. It was very difficult to reduce those trade barriers because you have entrenched interests that uh, benefit from uh, limits and it took creative governments, Hawk Keating in Australia, Reagan uh, in the US, Thatcher in Britain and others to uh, open up markets. So it was hard to create, but it's also hard to reverse because once you have globalization, you create a lot of vested interest in having a stake in it, seeing it continued, and you can see the costs of turning inward more directly. One example of that: when President Trump imposed the steel tariffs, uh, many uh, commentators in the United States or many industries had said, "You know, we wish we could get tariff protection too. It would be so good for the U.S." Um, those who didn't like the free trade consensus. Well, guess what? We tried it and the results were not good. It's very much damaged downstream manufacturers that rely on cheap imported steel. It's gotten a lot of bad press in the United States. There's been a lot of retaliation against American farmers requiring us to have taxpayer funds to bail out American farmers. And people are saying, why are we doing this? This is self-inflicted damage. And so just as the Smooth hawley Tariff, which many of you may not have heard of, but it was an American Tariff Act rather infamous in 1930 that sort of started the trade wars of the 30s and put a downward spiral on world economic activity, just as that delegitimized protectionism in the eyes of policymakers and academics and others, the Trump experiment of trying higher tariffs, it hasn't worked out, and I think it could also um, handcuff future administration from saying we should try higher tariffs. Now we've had tried that experiment, it doesn't work out, it's not very popular. And so the hope would be is that there would be a limit to how much we can turn in because we've tried this, it doesn't work out well. And so the question is how do we manage globalization going forward and how do we keep it going to benefit all uh, and keep the, the flow of commerce around the world uh, going? So that's a, a little pitch in terms of where I see things and I'm happy to answer questions at the Q&A or elsewhere on, uh, on what's going on in the US or on any other
0: aspect of this. Thanks so much, Doug. That's a great, great uh, set of introductory remarks. But um, I do want to come now to Stephen. Um, And Stephen, I'm wondering if you might take a bit of time uh, to take us through this new report. Um, There's some empirical analysis um, here as well that that I think is is great. Um, Over to you for a few minutes to talk about what's in the report.
2: Thanks, Simon. Uh, So since about the mid 2000s, there's been a slowdown in productivity growth in Australia, the United States and indeed globally. And economists have been scratching their heads about this, trying to determine what might be causing what seems like a, a trend slowing in productivity growth. And there have been numerous explanations advanced. Some suggest that this is a secular stagnation, a permanent downward shift in productivity growth. Um, But none of the explanations are entirely convincing. They always leave out some part of what seems to be going on. At the same time, we've had a slowdown in globalization uh, that also begins in the mid 2000s. And so as Gary uh, Huffbauer has uh, said, the coincidence of these two stagnations seems to be too great to ignore, Uh, and globalisation potentially provides an overarching explanation for why productivity growth uh, might have slowed down. So I first looked at this question in a previous report where I looked at the Australia-US productivity differential, and I sought to explain Australia's productivity performance in terms of what's been happening with globalization of the Australian economy. And historically, it seems that productivity and living standards in Australia do best when uh, firstly Australia is integrated with the world economy, um, but also when the, the world economy is going through uh, episodes of globalization as opposed to deglobalization. So globalization is essentially the way in which Australia imports productivity trends from the rest of the world. Uh, in particular from the United States, which is at the the frontier of globalization and uh, innovation. So globalization is important for us. What I do in this report is extend essentially the same model to the OECD uh, as a group of countries and ask essentially the same question. Can we explain what's happening with uh, labor productivity with reference to trends in globalization? So to give you an idea of what this looks like um, Mara, if you want to put up uh, my slide. So this is just a snapshot of the relationship between uh, a measure of globalization on the vertical axis and the level of labor productivity for the OECD uh, on the horizontal and the country codes here are the ISO country codes. So this is for 2017 And you can see a positive relationship uh, on average between the level of globalization and the level of labor productivity. And if you look right in the middle there, you'll see Australia pretty much uh, on the line of best fit. Um, So pretty average in terms of the relationship between globalization and labor productivity. Obviously room for improvement in terms of our level of labor productivity compared to the US. You can see the US uh, just on the right there, Uh, but also scope for us to uh, increase the openness of the Australian economy. Uh, We are not as globalized as we should be for an economy of our size. Uh, And so in my report, I take this snapshot, just not for 2017, but look at the entire period from 1970 uh, through to 2017. And what we find is a very strong statistical uh, association between globalization and labor productivity and it's it's an association that's consistent with causality running from uh, globalization to labor productivity. Uh, So here we have a potential explanation for why productivity growth in Australia, the US and around the world uh, seems to have slowed uh, since uh, 2008 and the financial crisis. Uh, the pace of globalisation has levelled off, and we see the, the same phenomenon uh, with labour productivity. Of course, this only pushes the question one step back. If, if slower globalisation is the cause of slower productivity growth, then what's the cause of slower globalisation? Uh, Doug has hinted at some of those factors. Uh, the things that I would point to would be uh, the lack of a significant year-round in multilateral trade liberalisation, uh, since the mid-2000s. Uh, creeping or micro-protectionism on the part of uh, many countries. If you look at the work of Simon Evenett, who was a guest at the Centre last year, and his Global Trade Alert database, uh, he has chronicled the rise of uh, micro-protections which don't fall within the ambit of the WTO's measures of protectionism, uh, but are, are nonetheless economically significant Uh, And also a loss of uh, economic reform momentum at a domestic level in many economies, uh, including Australia. So one of the things that we often lament in Australia is that there hasn't been significant new uh, economic reform uh, impetus uh, since the the mid-2000s. So I think these are all things we can point to to explain uh, slower globalization and what it points to is a loss of economic dynamism, which is showing up in in labor productivity. Uh, So what can we do with these results? Uh, Well, we can use them to quantify the benefits of globalization. Uh, These would appear to be significant, especially when you think of productivity as being the main driver of living standards uh, in the long run. Uh, But of course, we can also use these results to quantify the implications of a deglobalization shock like COVID-19. And so the way I like to think about this is what would happen if we were to go back to Uh, earlier periods in terms of our measure of uh, globalization. So what if we were to wind back the clock all the way to 1970 uh, and say, what would be the implications for labor productivity if we had 1970s levels of global economic integration? And based on my results, you would conclude that all else being equal, then you'd be looking at labor productivity across the OECD uh, as a whole uh, being about 24% lower. Uh, than it would be today. Uh, another way of saying that would be if we, for a hundred dollars worth of labor uh, inputs, you'd be losing about $24 worth of output. So I think this gives us a sense of what's at stake in terms of uh, the slowdown in globalization and the implications of a deglobalization shock like uh, COVID-19. So and, and of course the policy responses as well. Uh, So one of the things we saw of the financial crisis uh, in 2008 was, although it was a temporary shock in many ways, it did have a very persistent effect on globalisation. Along a number of dimensions, particularly cross-border capital flows, uh, the world has still not recovered from the global financial crisis. Uh, In some ways, this is an even bigger shock to globalisation, albeit along different dimensions. So this is mainly hitting the cross-border movement of people. Uh, So it's affecting migration, uh, tourism, uh, the global trade in human capital, if you like. Uh, Although we hope that this is a temporary shock, the the fear would be that this is going to be more persistent uh, than we would like. Uh, It will compound the effect of the GFC, uh, Donald Trump's trade war, And the concern also is that the public policy responses uh, in the wake of COVID-19 might also be hostile to globalisation. So as Doug indicated, there's going to be an increased focus on, a greater focus on economic sovereignty and economic self-sufficiency. But I think it's interesting if you look at uh, globalisation and the pandemic, It's certainly true that globalization and economic integration increases your exposure to a shock like COVID-19. But I don't think it actually tells you very much about your resilience to a shock like this. Uh, It's interesting that if you look at highly globalized, highly urbanized economies like Singapore and Taiwan, uh, yes they were certainly exposed and vulnerable to this shock, But their very high level of globalisation also meant that they had very high levels of income uh, and very good quality governance. Because one of the things globalisation does, I think, is help improve your quality of governance. Uh, Poor governance, poor institutions do not typically survive exposure to international competition. So if you look at two of the economies in the world where we would expect to have the greatest exposure, they also show the greatest resilience. And I think it's not Uh, unrelated to the fact that they're they're highly globalised, highly urbanised economies. Uh, So the lesson I take from this is that uh, globalisation is a double-edged sword. It does give you greater exposure to international shocks, uh, but at the same time, I think it gives you the capacity to better respond and manage the shocks. Um, So in terms of the sort of public policy responses we might see, uh, I think rather than looking at economic self-sufficiency or economic sovereignty, I think we should look at this through the lens of uh, economic resilience. Uh, So rather than aiming for national self-sufficiency and the production of certain goods and services which might be deemed critical to the economy, uh, I think there are other approaches we can take. Uh, The most obvious would be stockpiling. It's economically a lot more efficient to stockpile critical goods at world prices than it is to try and produce them uh, yourself. And I think this is where our alliance relationships uh, come in as well. I think there's scope for uh, burden sharing amongst the uh, U.S. alliance network in terms of uh, stockpiling and giving access to uh, uh, critical goods and services. And I think we should also not underestimate the uh, industrial capacity of the U.S. alliance network as well. So if you look at all countries, including Australia, that are allied with the United States, Uh, I think their industrial capacity collectively uh, dwarfs China. Uh, I think it's very interesting that if you look at both Australia and the US, the uh, industrial sectors of uh, both economies were able to pivot very quickly to respond to the the COVID-19 emergency. Uh, So I think we're perhaps more resilient than we sometimes give ourselves uh, credit for. Uh, And I think the... uh, U.S. Alliance Network provides potentially an organising mechanism whereby we can uh, build uh, greater resilience to, to shocks of this kind.
0: Sorry, I was on mute for the last forty-five seconds. We did hear that. Okay, I'm so sorry about that. Um, um, real quickly, Stephen. Then um, diversification in in one's trading partners is that baked into the analysis in some way? Was I, I remember talking to you about the report as you were researching it? That your measure of globalization does take into account the diversity uh, in in your in one's trading partners and trade network.
2: That's right. So you can think of globalization along two dimensions. So one of them is depth. So how deeply your economy is engaged with the rest of the world. So the trade goods share of the economy, for example. Uh, but you can also think of it in terms of the breadth. So in other words, how many trading partners uh, do you have? And so the measure of globalization I'm using uh, incorporates both dimensions. Uh, so it actually would penalize uh, a lack of diversity uh, in trading partners. Uh, So one of the messages that comes out of this is that seeking greater diversity in your trading partners with a view to increasing your resilience to shocks is still nonetheless consistent with improving labor productivity. So it's useful to pursue globalization on both dimensions. And I think it's another way in which globalization is consistent with greater resilience.
0: Yeah. I think that's a really key point given the, um, the intense nexus uh, between, you know, economic sovereignty and and security concerns and and you know contemporary debates about the virtues of, of, of globalisation or otherwise. Um, um, I'm wondering if we might, at this point, are we the the time's going so quickly. Uh, we're, we're 20 minutes to go, um, and I'd I'd love to start to turn to turn to questions from the floor, as it were. Um, And and I I might start with um, a question from Brett Williams, um, who's who's been a tremendous ally of ours, uh, helping us out with events here in Sydney, but one of Sydney's and Australia's uh, leading trade lawyers. uh, And and Brett asks, how do we get back to achieving trade liberalization on a most favored nation basis uh, through multilateral negotiations in the WTO? And and Doug and or Stephen, please. um, have have a swing at that one?
1: Well, I can be very pessimistic by saying we won't. Okay. (laughs) There are just too many obstacles, both political and economic. So there are problems, even take away the geopolitical issues uh, that we're having in terms of the US and China. Um, The Doha round did not go well. Um, There are a number of uh, actors in the system that are not interested in in significant reform. Um, uh, Don't want to single out uh, particular countries there, but uh, because it operates by consensus and because the issues are so complex and contentious, uh, I think it's just a very slow um, process that is not gonna work out well. Um, Paul Collier has an interesting piece in The World Economy a couple of years ago on um, basically why the WTO is deadlocked. He does suggest some ways to overcome that, but I wouldn't be optimistic. I do think that at least when I look at the United States, either with new administration, or even possibly if uh, President Trump were to be reelected, there's gonna be a rethinking on the Trans-Pacific Partnership. And so I still think that the regional route, uh, and particularly, once again, depending on what happens, uh, perhaps an initiative with Europe, um, trying to dust that off, um, those would be in the cards. And of course, uh, um, TPP, Australia is already a player, so, they could possibly look forward to the US engaging in that. But a big multilateral round, I think it's it's not in the cards, unfortunately.
2: Unfortunately, I'm inclined to agree with uh, Doug. I think a uh, major round of multilateral trade liberalization will be hard to progress, uh, particularly with the loss of US leadership uh, on that issue. Uh, but I think one of the other factors here is that when the WTO was formed, Uh, There was a big incentive for countries to uh, agree to the WTO system of world trade rules, because they all wanted to be part of the WTO club. Uh, Now that they're all in it, uh, the incentives to reach agreement on a new round of multilateral trade liberalisation are much weaker. Uh, And so I think this is one of the problems. There's a lot of attention being uh, turned to reform of the WTO at the moment. Um, Australia and the EU in particular, being uh, very active on this front. Uh, But I think the sort of things they're talking about uh, really changes on the margin, which are probably not going to address the the fundamental incentive problems that we have here.
0: Um, I'd like to, there's a question here from Michael Lester. um, And I think there's a few questions in this sort of, the theme that Michael gets to, and that is to what extent can the discontents of globalization in America, uh, especially inequality, be explained by the failure of American domestic politics uh, to distribute the gains of globalization fairly among its citizens, rather, down, rather than put down to globalization per se that fueled global economic prosperity. So right, I, th- I, th- I think you guys get the gist of the, of the question there. Um, how about same orders before Doug and maybe Stephen then? Thank you. Sure.
1: Um, You know, when we talk about a globalization backlash or discontent over globalization, when you look at public opinion polling of uh, of the American public, they've never been more in favor of expanding global trade than today. And it's absolutely remarkable what these polls show, because in the 1990s, they did not show that. In the 2000s, they did not. Um, The 1990s, there was some margin in favor of globalization. The 2000s, less so, that had reversed. But since about 2015 or so, this predates President Trump, but it's accelerated under President Trump more Americans uh, are much more favorable to global economic integration. Whether that will manifest itself in policy, I can't say. But I think, um, yes, there are definitely issues with the American social safety net. There definitely have been issues with um, the China shock that occurred in the 2000s in terms of hitting smaller rural communities and and shutting down a local plant. People are not willing to move to other communities where there might be jobs created. So that's been created. uh, This economic dislocation has caused political problems. But by and large, the American public, and I still think much of American business, and even in the political community on Capitol Hill, there is support for traditional alliances and moving forward with trade liberalization. Unfortunately, the one person who's very important in this whole setup, the president, takes a very different view. But different president, a very different America, I think you'll see on the global stage.
2: It's the same situation in Australia, actually, that uh, Australians, uh, when you ask them, still have very high opinions of trade relationships, international economic integration, and uh, still conclude that globalisation is a net benefit to the Australian economy. Uh, if anything, we are more enthusiastic than Americans about this. Uh, so a lot of people have suggested that the rise of populist politics is attributable to as a, as a backlash against globalisation. Uh, I think what's happening here is that the slowdown in globalization uh, is symptomatic of a loss of economic dynamism. And that loss of economic dynamism is more likely to be implicated in the, in the rise of populist politics uh, and, and disaffection. Uh, so, And if you look at the timing of this, uh, globalization slowed before we saw the upsurge in populist politics from about 2016. So if we think of this in terms of uh, a backlash, I think uh, the causality is basically running from um, a slowdown in globalization, um, causing this rather than too much globalization.
0: Um, Thanks. Um, And again, just not unrelated to the previous question. um, Isabel uh, Wolfensberger asks, um, really interesting. uh, Beyond the flow of goods, COVID-19 and its associated travel restrictions and border closures have also undoubtedly impacted the flow of human labour around the world. Do you foresee that these changes to global labour migration will be largely reversed once international and cross-border travel recovers, or will these changes be more permanent in the post-COVID world?
1: That's a great question. I can only speak about American agriculture in particular, which is very dependent on seasonal migrant workers from Mexico. And um, once again, once the, the pandemic passes, uh, those farmers are going to need uh, labor. Uh, I know in Britain, uh, they've talked about uh, uh, getting um, uh, you know, people working back in the fields. That's not going to happen in the U.S. So those farmers are a very powerful constituency for trying to normalize and return to normal uh, the migrants uh, worker that they had before. So I suspect that will bounce back. Other forms of temporary migration, uh, hard to say, but I think in terms of agriculture, which is a big one for the US, uh, there will be pressures to uh, keep the system open and, and moving.
2: I think the reversal in people flows will be very significant. Um, and this will be the first time in Australia's history, uh, outside of wartime, I think that population growth will uh, go to very close to zero, if, if not negative.
0: negative yeah.
2: And uh, uh, one of the things I've been focusing on in my work is the contribution that cross-border people flows make to innovation and productivity. So in my report on the US-Australia productivity differential, I basically run through the numbers on the impact that migration um, has on productivity in Australia, and, and it's positive. Um, So we tend to think of migration as being a source of demand in the economy, uh, a source of uh, supply in terms of new workers. Um, But I think people are increasingly uh, growing appreciative of the contribution that uh, immigration makes to uh, innovation uh, and productivity. Uh, And that contribution may actually be the more important one in the long run, because that's where our living standards derive from, ultimately.
0: Yeah, and I know, Stephen, just to signal, I know it's something on your docket, the Senate's docket for, for later in the year, um, looking a little more specifically at that relationship uh, between um, uh, migration flows and and economic growth um, and some of the other outcomes you were just alluding to as well, um, enormously important uh, for both economies, frankly, and I um, and you know, a really interesting consequence of um, for Australia, I think, um, where population growth has largely been a, a migration story, and a lot of estimates about the contribution that's made to GDP growth. And you take that away, um, how, how will we fare? So, so great question, and and just to advertise, a, a question we are returning to as a US study center later in the year for sure. Um, I'm just looking through some of the other questions we've got. A great another question here uh, Jean Huang asks um, does the coupling, does the coupling between China and the u.s. Um, taking place in cross-border retail e-commerce um, um, and to what extent have governments got the ability to regulate that for something that's more consumer driven um, and hence the questioner asks: I am not sure whether the decoupling led by the government, what its impact will be on consumer driven businesses and, and parts of economic activity. Uh, any observations on that, Doug and Stephen?
1: Well, it's been very interesting that uh, the U.S. has imposed uh, tariffs on about half of our imports from China. Exempt has been Apple. So the iPhone and the the electronics that they produce, uh, and I think because Apple is a very politically influential firm, they've been exempted from that. So that will keep some of the uh, consumer goods at least moving. If we're talking about uh, e-commerce and retail, I think the degree of integration at that level is not very high. Uh, It's not as though Americans are buying from Chinese retailers. And we know that American retailers have been uh, locked out of the Chinese market. That's been the basis for many of the complaints that um, Google, Facebook and others uh, simply can't operate in in China. And that applies to other uh, businesses as well. So uh, unless China's willing to make movements there, um, I'm not not sure we're gonna see much greater integration at least in the digital space um, between the two countries. The question really being moving forward, how much of a disintegration will we see in the uh, commercial relationship, the movement of students, tourists and uh, capital flows.
2: I think we've seen uh, an emphasis on decoupling coming out of the United States and the Trump administration, but it's also an emphasis on uh, part of the Chinese Communist Party, that they are increasingly looking at an uh, Indigenous-led innovation strategy, uh, an attempt to become uh, self-sufficient and net exporters in the uh, production of uh, critical goods, in particular in the ICT space. And it's spilling over into services as well. So I think there's an aspiration in China to uh, develop domestic uh, champions in e-commerce and across a whole range of other services. Uh, And so there's this drive for economic self-sufficiency in China, which combined with the Trump administration's protectionist instincts uh, is a a recipe for uh, divergence between, between the two economies. So it's coming from both sides, and I think this is a a dangerous combination in terms of the uh, trend for globalization. Uh, You see both China and US uh, actively pursuing policies that are designed to to decouple.
0: Um, Perhaps not a bad segue to a question from Fred Chilton um, from Toomey Peg Lawyers, who asked about the role of Southeast Southeast Asian economies uh, what, what, you know, their role in, in contributing to global supply chains, both, you know, on the demand side and the supply side, I guess, um, um, you know, lots of sort of um, reporting going on um, about, you know, how much production is moving from China to Southeast Asian economies. Any observations on that, uh, Doug, Stephen? Not much more than that is that uh, one
1: byproduct, I guess, of the U.S.-China trade wars, this is a tremendous opportunity for many other uh, East Asian and Southeast Asian countries. Um, they are going to be the location of, of this diversification, this uh, movement towards resilience of supply chains, to the extent that things are going to be moving out of China, they're not coming back to the U.S. Possibly Mexico could play a role there, but I think it's really other uh, Asian countries that have this tremendous opportunity to attract investment, jobs, and trade, um, in lieu of, Japan, of China.
2: Yes, I'd agree with that. The only note of caution I would sound is that as countries like Vietnam, for example, benefit from the reallocation of supply chains, if that changes the trade balance between the US and Vietnam, then you might find the Trump administration turning its uh, protectionist eye uh, in that direction. Um, so I think these countries need to be uh, careful that they don't end up being on the receiving end of a game of whack-a-mole by the Trump administration, where uh, the protectionist measures basically follow the, the trade diversion uh, effects.
0: Good point, Stephen. Um, if, um, if simply moving the trade deficit from one country to another, um, if the trade deficit is the problem, then, yeah, right, enough said. Um, <laughs> Look, this is an interesting question. And again, from Judith King, who's um, a history and politics tutor uh, here in, in Sydney. And it's a question we hear a lot. Um, and that is, you know, how do we ensure that global companies pay tax? And it sort of, I think it dovetails in quite a few questions about sort of this, this you know, the way that globalization is is seen as a driver of inequality and 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 uh, uh, and with perhaps exhibit a being for many people perhaps like judith being you know the the low tax rates that that big multinational corporations are able to enjoy through 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 globalization and and where they locate their activities and and whatnot i just think that's an important issue for for us to address doug Stephen.
1: Yeah, it's uh, become increasingly discussed in the US um, about where uh, multinationals are sheltering their income. So, Ireland, um, I'm not sure, you know, the Trump administration is focused on China. At some point, they may be focusing on Ireland, of all things, uh, just because that's where many companies seem to be uh, uh, locating um, some of their uh, activities to uh, avoid US tax. You know, here the forum, of course, is the OECD, in which there have been uh, long term discussions on precisely this issue. Um, I'm not sure how quickly those have been moving, but I think it's certainly much more on the radar screen of American policymakers than it was, say, five years ago. So I'd be hopeful that there would be some traction about trying to deal with um, uh, these. And of course there are things in the U S tax code that encourage this. And that was something that was not taken up in the tax reform bill passed uh, two years ago. Um, But I think it has been noted as a flaw and and could get revisited at some point.
2: I think the, Multilateral effort at the OECD uh, to address this is uh, very significant. Uh, I think we need a multilateral solution, because what we don't want is basically national governments all taking a stab at essentially the same revenue. And so we end up with you know, double taxation um, uh, of corporates. So you know, that effort will be important. At the same time, I think we want to be wary of the OECD forming something of a tax cartel where they all conspire to basically raise their corporate tax rates and and the corporate tax tax take. Uh, I think jurisdictional competition uh, in relation to company tax is not a bad thing because it puts uh, pressure on governments to create a competitive uh, tax environment um, for their economies. Mm -hmm. Uh, not just for uh, foreign companies, but for domestic companies as well. Um, So we don't want a situation where we have this uh, international revenue raising cartel, essentially. Uh, We'd still like to see, I think, uh, some competitive uh, tension uh, in the approach to to corporate taxation.
0: Um, And finally, I guess there's a few questions here um about you know just asking i think you guys as with your knowledge of economic history how dangerous are the times in in which well you know this this idea of uh, a network of of u.s allies reverting to supporting one another with you know uh, sort of a network on on critical uh, supply chains, supply chains of critical goods. A um, few questions asking but this looks like the emergence of a, of a second Cold War. Is there a, you know, just ask you guys to opine on, you know, the links between sort of turning away from, you know, what, what in political science we call the liberal peace, but actually looks like a, a trading peace, um, you know, the destabilizing effects potentially. Of, of a retreat from, from globalisation and, 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 and economic liberalisation.
1: Well, here, here's where the lessons of history were, maybe very complex uh, and it may be difficult to infer things. You know, when we look to the past, uh, last American uh, geostrategic rival was the Soviet Union, in which case there was no economic competition whatsoever, right. no economic integration. Uh, our greatest economic rival in past decade, recent decades was Japan, Uh, But there we had a very uh, tight and meshed uh, uh, military alliance and national security relationship with, we were allies. And so there's a limit to how far that uh, the the economic disputes could go. With China, it's a completely different story. Of course, uh, there's a high degree of economic integration and a high degree of uh, competition or rivalry, if you will. And so where this leads, it's, it's very tricky. Now, of course, talking about the liberal trading piece, the fact that they, we have been so highly integrated means that it's actually been very difficult to disintegrate that relationship, and that, would, and the, and the, that economic uh, uh, benefit to both sides is a check, in some sense, on military or political behavior that might lead to a quick deterioration in relations. At the same time, I don't think the relationship is, is getting any better, and I don't think it's going to be improving over the next uh, three to five years, and this is independent of President Trump. Um, I think the next administration will just be as tough. In fact, is going to, are going to, if it's a Biden administration, they're going to bring human rights mm-hmm. and many other things into the agenda, which uh, the Chinese don't want, and Trump is, has uh, not talked about. So we're in for, uh, I think, a very difficult period in uh, terms of that relationship, and there's going to be economic and political consequences, um, and it's, I think it's very hard to foresee exactly what, uh, what road is going to be taken.
2: I think the historical record does provide plenty of examples of things going terribly wrong. So if you look at Australia in the 1890s, Doug's research on Australian exceptionalism uh, points this out that uh, in the 1890s, Australia had uh, a standard of living that was as much as 40% higher than the United States. We had wages for workers in Sydney that were double those of workers in Uh, San Francisco and Chicago, uh, all on the back of very high levels of productivity uh, in Australia and very high levels of integration with the the world economy. So Australia was once more globally integrated than we are now, uh, very high levels of productivity and living standards, and it all came crashing down in the period after 1890. So we had a big terms of trade shock in uh, the 1890s and then we had the period of deglobalization from 1914 uh, through to 1945. Uh, so in that 50-year period from 1890 uh, to 1939 uh, we had stagnant living standards uh, in Australia um, coming off a period in which we had the world's highest living standards. Um, so this provides an example of how things can go terribly wrong. Uh, in Australia's case, this was largely a function of the international environment. It wasn't a function of what was happening uh, domestically so much. Uh, but I think it shows, you know, what's potentially at stake here. And we need to be very mindful of the direction in which uh, these things are moving.
0: Well said, Stephen. And that brings us to the top of the hour. in fact, just a little after. So, so let me uh, briefly, therefore, thank Doug for for giving us an hour of his his time this evening from from New Hampshire, thank you, Doug, and and just such a pleasure to have your expertise on the call today. And COVID-19 has has made uh, this mode of interaction uh, uh, It's allowed us to engage. With, with people such as yourselves based in the US that would otherwise see us uh, flying you out here or whatnot. <laughs> so it's actually kind of, in, in an odd way, lowered the costs of these extremely valuable interactions for us. So, so thank you for that. And thank you, Stephen, and encourage everybody once again, uh, do look at Stephen's report. It's, a, it's, a, it's an impressive piece of work um, um, with, and like I said, I think is the best of what think tanks do, um, combining rigorous empirical analysis, um, in, in the pursuit of a, of a question of great significance for, for Australia um, and, and so we're, we're immensely pleased to see that report up on our website today and also just let me briefly signal next week the webinar series continues um, next Tuesday uh, again looking at life after COVID how will COVID-19 kickstart entrepreneurship um, that our uh, Claire McFarlane from the US Study Center will be leading that discussion. That's next Tuesday at 11 o'clock Sydney time. Um, Thank you to Janine and Mara on the back end for keeping everything moving. Uh, And thank you all for attending uh, another United States Studies webinar. See you next week. Thanks, Doug. Thanks, Stephen. Thanks, everyone. Thank you.